You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. There's three things that sets designing at Facebook apart from designing anywhere else. Scale, variety, and investment. Facebook Design's work has impact at scale, including your friends and family or people from the other side of the globe. Facebook Design also works on a huge and diverse range of problems, and they truly invest in design, caring deeply about how their team might do their best work. Sound interesting? Then learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses, but really it's a great marketing platform for all businesses. MailChimp grows with you, so as you get bigger, they have more features for you when you're ready to use them. So if you're just starting out or you want to take your business to the next level, give MailChimp a try. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Shani Sandy, a design executive at IBM. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Absolutely. So first off, thanks for having me. It's, it's great to, to be on your podcast today, Maurice. I've been following you for a while and uh, just kudos all the way around. Uh, so my name is Shani Sandy and I am currently an, a design executive at IBM. I actually am a recent hire starting a little over three months ago in November. So I'm curious, what does a design executive do? <laughs> I know, I know. It's, a, it, it, it's, I will tell you a stumper a lot of times when I share with folks my new title. So here, here's the interesting way of thinking about the design executive role, specifically here at IBM. I think what IBM did was recognize that designers in terms of their growth oftentimes get into a situation of, do I focus more on my practice or do I go into a management lane? Mm. And oftentimes we end up doing both, frankly, right? I, I, you know, prior, prior to me starting here at IBM, I was very much doing both. I was very much leading as a manager and head of my team, but also still very involved in the craft, the practice of the work. And it's really challenging to do both in a way that you feel is excellent. At least for me, it was. Mm -hmm. And so what was attractive to me about this specific role as design executive is that there is a path here at IBM where you can focus on being a manager, a leader, a, a really an advocate for design um, and still have a view into practice, still be able to touch practice and provide direction around it. But there's leadership specifically dedicated to practice. And that's the, the label for that um, are design principles of distinguished designers. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a split that happens here where you can go that executive path, which is more around management of the team and evangelizing design as a practice and also design thinking or more into that practitioner path where you're still very much hands-on with the work that you do, whether that's user research design all the way down to you know, front-end development. So that's kind of the split that has been created here. And the design practice really embraces both, but I think it recognized that it's often challenging to actually be able to do both as yeah. one individual, right? So, so that's that's the, how the role came to be, and my focus is really on that community aspect, building the practice from a leadership point of view, and really making sure that 
design has a seat at the table from an executive level. I think it's really important that uh, you point that out, because certainly I feel with people whom I've interviewed for the show, even just with designers I've talked to in general, that split does come at some point in their career where they have to decide, Mm -hmm. do I just want to keep designing or if I want to, you know, make more money or, you know, get more seniority, do I move up in Mm -hmm. the leadership ranks? And it does feel like when you move up in those leadership ranks, you're doing less and less of the sort of hands-on type Mm -hmm. of work. You're more so managing a team and making sure they have what they need to do the work and you're not doing as much of the work. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad that IBM has decided to kind of merge those together in this role. Cause usually when I think of IBM, I think, you know, mainframe computer. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a kid from the eighties. So like, that's what, that's what I think about. And I know within the past, maybe five to seven years, IBM has really kind of stepped out there in terms of a lot of uh, practice as well as, I think, Mm -hmm. hiring and things around design and design thinking in general. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that attracted me to IBM was something I saw about four, four or five years ago before it was even on my radar. And I saw Phil Gilbert speaking at an AIGA event and he was talking about IBM looking to take in design thinking at scale and hire all these designers, you know, a thousand plus designers. I remember sitting in the audience thinking, okay, sounds really great, but let's see how this goes, right? You know, I had a healthy dose of skepticism when I heard that. And and so, you know, some years passed and kind of kept my eye on them. And as I was building out my own team at S&P Global, the former company that I worked at, I definitely started to see changes happening at IBM, specifically hiring and also the espousing of this kind of design thinking ethos, meaning that there are different methods to approach innovation and problem solving and just basic thinking. And IBM decided to embrace design thinking as one of those methods. So the the, the ethos is one that I think is something that clearly attracted me to the company because it goes beyond just the design team. So design team is not meant to be the only team in the organization that embraces design thinking. Mm -hmm. It's meant Mm -hmm. to be a a method of, of problem solving that involves all of us, counterparts that may be on the engineering side, um, that may be marketers, commercial side, all of us are meant to be able to say, okay, well, here's a simplified way of thinking about things. There's an actual method to the way that we can process information and keep our clients in the center of that. And so when I saw that this was, this was a philosophy all the way up the ranks of the CEO level and that there was actually a general manager focus on design and design thinking, it it was, it just felt like, wow, you know, I don't see a lot of companies doing this. In fact, frankly, I didn't see any other companies doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so that was something that I, I, I completely admired. And so when I got the phone call about this role, you know, it, it made a lot of sense for me to entertain the conversation and, and ultimately join the team. Okay. Now, with design thinking, I feel like that's a term, aside from the way that you've just mentioned it, yeah. it's a term that's kind of been overused a bit. Yeah. Um, I hear a lot of folks refer to design thinking and, and not doing it in the specific and measured ways that you're talking about, but yeah. they feel design thinking is just a consultation or something like that. Yeah. I'm thinking uh, in particular, um, and you may have heard of this criticism from uh, Natasha Jen, who's a partner at Instagram. Mm-hmm. Talking about how, you know, basically saying that design thinking is, it's problematic, it's bullshit, it's not mm-hmm. this thing that can like fix the world. And I know there was a lot of, you know, discussion around that. What are yeah. your thoughts on on that? Like how people are kind of yeah. misusing design thinking? Yeah, look, it's a tool, right? It's a tool, it's a methodology. I, I, I know I'm familiar with what you're talking about and just general criticism. I, I think Anyone who proposes that a methodology, an approach, a tool is going to 
be the be all and end all and solve all problems or solve major complex problems is is not being truthful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think that we found success here with using design thinking at an enterprise level where you're bringing into the mix, like I said, a multi-functional, multi-disciplinary team to tackle the pain points of our clients and to really put ourselves in the shoes of our clients and to come to the table with a really healthy bench of design practitioners. So you're thinking about the, the user research, the actual UX of, the, of, of, of how someone experiences um, an offering, the actual building out of, of a product or an experience from a front-end development point of view, the visual design from a UI point of view. So I think that design thinking allows you to understand what are the elements you need to create a, a, a as best as possible, successful scenario for working through problems but it's a it's an approach. It's one approach that necessitates a number of other important elements: the right team members, the right problem statement, um, frankly, the right environment that actually really embraces that approach. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I I think it's always you know I, I appreciate a, a healthy dose of cynicism when it comes to um, making making kind of any practice. Uh, uh, the golden child. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that we at IBM or even I myself personally would say that it is it is the pinnacle of problem solving or innovation. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's one approach that when used when used in as fully as possible is very successful with outcomes. Well, I think, you know, also part of that criticism that people have behind design thinking is that it deals so much with the future it deals with like the <laughs> intangible like you're kind of pulling something out of data and analysis that may not specifically be there like i used to tell people that mm. i sort of see design thinking as the same as the scientific method just in terms of the steps that you have to do with you know um, forming a hypothesis running experiments you know iterating on that sort of thing yeah. And it kind of is the same. I think scientific the scientific method is more about dealing with like tangible data, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, with with uh, with design thing is much more intangible. You're dealing with things that you may not necessarily like you mentioned UX, for example. So you're mm-hmm. dealing with humans there. That's a totally different kind of thing. So I, I see where that criticism can kind of come in, especially as it's being misused. Um, yeah. Certainly, yeah. I think. As design thinking matures, there will be more kind of stringent, I think, rules around how it's applied and things like that. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly the the thing. I think that it's there's still a certain level of evolution that's happening when people think about design thinking. And I think any time we're starting the conversation, we should level set. We should say, well, actually, what do you mean by design thinking, right? Yeah. Because I think the brands of design thinking that IBM. Uh, you know, focuses on an espouses is different from like, let's say an IDO. I think mm-hmm. it, in principle, like in general, there's a, a similar, there's a similar thread that cuts through all types of design thinking, but you're absolutely right. I think that that's part of the challenge with it is that oftentimes it's still very nebulous and it's not always clearly defined. Um, and frankly, I, I think it's probably a good thing. Like I, 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 I embrace that. I embrace that um, contrarian attitude, or 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 even some of the cynicism, because then it forces us to really get very clear on what we mean, and and have some kind of kind of proof behind what we've, we're doing and how it's actually being successful. Yeah. So you mentioned with IBM hiring all these designers. I'm curious. What yeah. does IBM look for from designers? Oh wow, that's a that's a good question. I don't have my HR hat on, but I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know, I I can speak to it. I think from what I've experienced, uh, and also what you know what I've seen so far in my early days. I think when I reflect on the recruiting process that I went through and the people that I met, and actually what I really appreciated about about my process is that. I don't have the traditional 
design profile in some ways, right? So, you know, I started off as a designer, if we take it all the way back, but, you know, I started off freelancing and had my own little studio for a couple of years and then eventually started up in startups and, you know, worked for some agencies. And I took kind of my longest stance at a startup that was a, fi- a fintech, financial technology startup in New York City. And from that point on, really built my career as a designer, but was very much a designer in a space that is typically not familiar with designers in finance and technology mm-hmm. at that time. Right? I think now it's it's a no-brainer that any tech company, of course, is going to have a slew of designers by discipline. But you know, when I started in the early 2000s, that wasn't always the case, or there was one designer that did everything. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I come from a background where I really had to kind of craft my 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 career and define my role in spaces where designers want typically thought of as top of mind or as essential. And so I think, you know, when IBM probably saw my profile, they also recognized that, oh, this is a different type of designer, a designer, sure, that has practice experience, but also is kind of familiar with being in places that have a certain level of complexity mm-hmm. um, that uh, oftentimes are kind of B2B businesses that really deal at scale and deal in a global arena. And so I think from from what I've seen, there is a desire to look at designers who, one, may not fit the typical mold, um, particularly for this kind of design executive uh, position, right? Because I think that position also requires that you have practice mm-hmm. at, in terms of your, your experience, but you practice uh, in terms of actual disciplines, right? But you also have the ability to work in a leadership team of individuals that may not understand your practice and that you may need to be very clear on what your value is as a design leader. Um, I think the the other thing that I've found IBM focusing on from a kind of designer attracting, like what type of attraction would make sense for designers here at IBM has to do with getting a lot of the, the kind of the early career professionals, like the, the, the emerging designers coming out of school, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, they have clearly a certain level of vibrancy and excitement and ambition. And there is a vast community here that can help to really groom them into whatever practice area they end up focusing on. Uh, so that's that's been clearly a focus area when it comes to recruiting for design talent here um, at the company and our team where we're you know we're focused on hiring too and building up our bench as well so so I think I think you know we're still we're still growing our team specific in my specifically in my um, part of the business but we have a really really significant team that we built of like I said a thousand plus designers of all types already here and I think that's a testament to the fact that the 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 profile of a designer uh, has breadth here. Mm. <laughs> it has range. Um, and, and so and so and that's again like you know that's partially why I'm here because I'm, I'm a bit of a unicorn uh, when it comes to being a designer who ended up taking the executive route. There's a word that you mentioned throughout that that I think is really important to kind of zero in on, which is is groom. There's a lot of places where they kind of, I think, expect designers to come in on the first day, hit the ground running. There's not a lot of kind of shaping into uh, the type of designer they are or even playing mm-hmm. their strengths or anything like that. So I think it's good to hear that IBM looks for those early career professionals because, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of design positions out there. There's not many that are, I don't want to say junior, but that's kind of a... That's kind of a qualifier I have to use. But, like, you're just coming out of school. You've got maybe about two or three years' experience. It's like, where can you land where you can really kind of grow yourself as a designer and not just keep doing production-level tasks or product-level tasks without any kind of, you know, path to advancement? 
Yes, absolutely. And, I, and I, I've been there. I think we've all been there, right? You get to this oh, yeah. point where you're, you're kind of like stuck doing the same type of like low level transactional work. And it's, it, 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 it really can be the breaking point to whether you stay in the field or not. Mm-hmm. And, and if you don't have either people in your corner or you don't use your creativity to kind of see, okay, how can I spin it to something else? Um, uh, you, you can quickly decide to leave the field and do something entirely different. Yeah. How do you think designers can transition into doing more of that work with like strategy and leadership? Like yeah. what you're doing? Yeah. You know, I, I, I fundamentally think that a designer's mind is actually the special part of the career path. So even when I think about, you know, my career and, and, and some of the careers of my peers, and this is not for every designer, right? But I think if you are in the position that you mentioned, Maurice, where you want to transition into, you know, more strategic work or, or provide a certain level of leadership at a senior level, then it's really about designing your career. Like, mm-hmm. I, I still very much feel like I'm a designer, even though I haven't made, opened up a conventional tool like a, you know, a, a Illustrator or InDesign or any Envision apps. I haven't opened up a tool like that in a while, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel very much tied to design because for me, I'm designing an organization. I'm designing community. I'm asking my team to design our culture, right? And so there are ways that I'm still using my design mind to make sense of a very complex and new turf for me, and then putting some framing around it, categorizing it, simplifying it. And these are the things that I think design minds do Mm -hmm. in general, and I'm applying it just to more of an organizational point of view. So I think for designers who are looking at, okay, well, how can I shift and transition into something else? I think the first thing is to define what you think that something else might be. It doesn't have to be perfect, but just define, okay, well, I think I really want to move into, let's say, creative strategy, for example, and start to look at well, some of the people in the field that may have associations with that type of work and study those people. It, you'd be surprised when you reach out to someone who you think may be inaccessible, the mm-hmm. responses you, you're likely to get. But, but I think it's important to study folks in the field and see what people are doing. And when you can, go to events, go to talks, uh, you know, join a Slack channel where there's a community around what you want to do. You have to be plugged in. But then I think the second thing is there's things you can do on your own, right? You could, it, there's no reason why you may be a designer that, again, is working on execution for most of what you do. But there's no reason why you can't be in a meeting, let's say, for example, and propose, hmm, perhaps I'll be the one to lead this meeting, mm-hmm. right? Perhaps I can be the one in the meeting to ask questions or to keep us on track with like, what are we trying to get at? What's the problem we're trying to, to, to focus on and kind of keep that mindset around like higher level thinking, right? So even the small ways you can start to do that in the organizations that you're in. Um, and I think that those types of things, whether they're plugging into the community or doing some kind of self-reflection and taking smaller actions within the context of your organization, in your teams, are, are really accessible, even though they may seem like they're not when you're doing some of the more executional, transactional work that, that tends to happen when you're you know, new or mid-level mm-hmm. um, um, in the field. So I think those are two, two things that I would absolutely propose to any designer that's feeling, you know, a little stuck. And, and I think one last thing I'll mention, because this is something that I ended up doing that I think was really valuable for me and shifted the way that my career evolved, is that I took on a new project that was not, was not given to me, <laughs> was not defined. And it was a project that, quite frankly, I don't think the company would even thought a designer would do. And it was about rationalizing our portfolio of offerings. Right. And you would immediately think, well, why would a designer be involved in that? Mm-hmm. And 
And I stepped up to the plate to say, I want to do this project. And had, of course, it was strategic when you, you know you hear about it. But for me, why I did it and why it made sense is that I, I wanted to make sense of why we were doing what we were doing. And the only way for me to get a, a, a sense around what our offerings were and how it impacted the market and then to be able to design for it was to do the work. And there was no one doing the work and I stepped up. So we're, we, as a designer, we see these gaps all the time. Yeah. Just because we don't have the label doesn't mean we can't step up and say, well, I'm going to try that and do a little skunk works piece out of it. Right. So uh, I know I told you a bunch of things but, and I could probably talk talk more and more on that. But but those some food for thought to start. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I think it's important. Definitely the stepping up part, like because of how designers look at problems, we see these gaps. Mm-hmm. And so it's not even it's not enough to point them out, especially and I'm talking I think specifically to my freelancers out there, it's not enough to just point out the problem, like mm-hmm. find a way to solve the problem, like That's talk right. your way into the solution. That's um, right. One thing that I, I used to tell, I still tell this to people, um, when they're trying to go after like, you know, bigger budgets or large companies, for example, like that, I would always tell people like, try to find a way that you can be a line on the annual report. Mm. You know? So mm-hmm. like, Yes, you can come in and say that you can do these different tasks and, and things of that nature, but like look at what they're doing and see where the deficiencies are, where yeah. you can kind of put yourself in there and then you're part of that you're part of their regular structure, you're on retainer and that sort of thing. But That's definitely right. if you if you see those those issues. I'd say even for in house, if you're working in house yeah. and you see that there are, are different um gaps that you have in certain design processes or things step up and fix them. It's that sort of initiative. I yeah. think that, you know, hiring managers or even people in the C-suite, like they pay attention to that kind of stuff. They sure do. They sure do. And it, it, it can be as simple too. Maurice, your point is saying being, being the person in the room to actually physically stand up, pick up the, pick up the magic marker or the Sharpie or the, you know, erasable pen or what have you, and go to the board and start scribing some things, right. And like visualizing what's being said. Even those types of steps will start to put you in that tract of like, okay, solutioning and like being seen as that person that's coming to the table to to come up with ideas that may or may not work, but that takes initiative to actually solve problems. And that is so critical in growing as a designer, but just as a professional, frankly. So yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. So let's go back. Of course, I, I did my research. I see, you know, you went to school. You started out at Columbia University. Yeah. Um, from there, you transferred to Tufts, uh, which is near Boston. What was what was that experience like? What made you made that? What made you make that switch from yeah. Boston like that? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a city girl. I represent Brooklyn. Have to, <laughs> <laughs> have to my Brooklyn shout out. Uh, you know, I I really wanted to come back to New York City. So a little bit of background, I actually went away to boarding school for high school. Okay. And that was not too far from New York City. It was in Connecticut. But, you know, for, for a city girl, that could, that feels like another planet to, to go away to school in, in the suburbs of Connecticut. And I knew two things. One, I wanted to come back to New York City for, for, uh, for university. Uh, and, and, you know, be, be closer to my family, be closer to, to, to city life. But two, I had a lot of interest in the rigor of the program at Columbia, mm-hmm. specifically the art history program, the liberal arts program. And so I always had my eye on coming back to New York City and attending Columbia. It was a bit of my, my, my dream school. So I started off freshman year and, you know, really enjoyed being back in the city. And my classwork was, was, you know, very much what I had anticipated in terms of the kind of the core curriculum and what I wanted to focus on, you know, in freshman year. But I quickly realized that the art history department there is a fantastic department, by the way. And that's that was one of the things in terms of my major that I wanted to do but I also still really wanted to do my studio artwork. Mm-hmm. And the disadvantage that I found at Columbia at the time was the studio art program was not rigorous. I knew I had the desire to continue painting, 
I wanted to continue drawing, but I also wanted to look at interactive media and other types of computer generated artwork. And I wasn't able to do that there. And so it was very much a, 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 a kind of torn decision for me to decide, okay, I'm going to leave Columbia, my dream school and go to Boston and, and go to Tufts, which had a combined degree, degree program, would actually would allow me to finish off my bachelor's in art history, but also do a BFA in focus in studio art. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I recognized that I wasn't fulfilled in the way I needed to be. And so I made the decision in my sophomore year to leave Columbia and transfer up to Tufts in the School of the Museum of Fine Art and do a combined degree program where I was able to do the two things that I wanted to do. Right. So so it, it 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 wasn't it wasn't the easiest thing to kind of express to everyone that I was gonna leave, but they understood when I explained why my parents understood and you know, I went ahead and ended up having to do a little extra, extra college time. So I ended up being in college for five and a half years um, as opposed <laughs> to four. Uh, but you know, I, I wouldn't trade it, Maurice. I would do it again because it, it I made a I made a decision to boldly decide I'm going to leave Columbia and mm-hmm. go up go up further north and, and, and try something different that I think is more aligned with what I'm supposed to be doing in my life. Uh, and so I, I think it was one of the best decisions I've made for my for my academic career. And so once you graduated, what was your what were those early moments of your career like? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Bruised and battered. No, um, um, you know, look, I I graduated right after 9-11, mm. right? So it was a tough time to be a graduate. Uh, and I, I know that folks, folks even now who are graduating are having, having challenges too. I spent the first three or so years as a freelancer. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I hustled, I came back to, well, the first about year or so I stayed in Boston. Um, I did work for a small company in Boston as a designer. And I mean, it was so small that I was working out of this, the, the, the owner's home small. <laughs> I mean, he had a cat that would jump on the, on the, on the, on the <laughs> it was a whole thing. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that was, that was important first step, right. Getting out of school and having, having a, a job that I could actually put my skills to use. And then I decided that I, I was going to come back to New York and continue to freelance and look for work. Right. And, you know, I really hit the pavement. I was interviewing as much as I possibly could. I, I ended up taking on jobs, of course, for people that I knew, but also for small startups uh, in, in the city. And that's one of the advantages of, you know, being in New York City is that there, there at least is, is more to try. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to last, but there are more things to try out. But it was rough economically because businesses just weren't at the same kind of, you know, level of bringing on talent full time yeah. after the events of 9-11. Um, and so, you know, those those early days, I think I think the, the two things that I learned from those early days, one is how to kind of have that entrepreneurial spirit and gumption and make things happen without getting a paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I was designing, but I also was teaching. Like I was trying to do all, anything that I felt was a match with my talents. Yeah. If it wasn't designed, I was doing that. Um, so that gives you that, that, that hustle, right. To just figure it out and make it work. But then I also was able to really get more critical about what I wanted to do with my career. Um, and so when I ended up finally kind of moving into my my first salary job, uh, it, it was it was unusual because it was in the tech space, right, financial technology space, but it was also finance. But I realized I wanted to do something that was that was going to be a little difficult, that was going to be a bit tough. And so that that definition happened in those, you know, three or so years when I was kind of figuring it out and doing all the things that us young designers do from logo work to websites to to business cards. I mean, you know, all of it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I I was in college. I was a junior. I was a junior in college when 9-11 happened. I remember vividly I was studying for a test for my abstract algebra two class. Mm. And I was in the study hall uh, at Kilgore at Morehouse and, you know, mm. saw the footage and everything. And then at the time I was, I was still in the scholarship program, but it was a scholarship mm-hmm. program from NASA. It's called mm-hmm. the project space program. And so essentially what it was is that I, I would say mostly through college, I didn't have really any kind of plan because <laughs> the way that my scholarship was set up. Uh-huh. Once I graduated, I knew that I was going to be working for NASA. Like that was uh-huh. the path. Path, right, gonna, right? Yeah, that was the path. And so I was like, I was taking classes I wanted to take. Like I majored in math. Not, I mean, I'm good at math, but like, right. it wasn't the kind of job where I knew, like, oh, I'm going to have this great earning potential when I get out. It was part of the scholarship. Yeah, yeah. So 9/11 happened, and then they ended up like yanking the funding. <laughs> the scholarship Uh, and now all of a sudden it's like oh wow i'm a junior in college with no job prospects (laughs) whatsoever and i managed to finagle my way into a few interview books and you know Mm -hmm. i I did what i had to do just in terms of like you know trying to find out what my prospects were but i was too late i mean folks in the business department and other departments already had stuff lined up and i mean when i graduated i was working for the uh the woodruff art center which is a like a theater space here in Atlanta. Okay. I was working there selling tickets to like the symphony yeah. and the theater yeah. and the museum and stuff. Oh. And I still had that job when I graduated. I actually had to go back to work. Was it yep. after graduation or was it the next day? It was like the next day. Mm-hmm. And I remember my boss taking away the calculator at my terminal. Like, Oh, you got a math degree now. You don't need this. <laughs> like, <laughs> gee, thanks. But right. I know what you mean. Like those first few years yep. were brutal. I did telemarketing yes. Yes. and Me all too. kinds of like call center <laughs> jobs and stuff yep. before yep. I found like my first like design gig. It was three years after I graduated before yep. I found my first design gig. So yep. yeah, it's, you just, you start doing those things just to kind of make sure you've got a roof over your head and food on the yep. table. And it's like, Oh, when, when is the thing going to happen? That's going to like <laughs> figure out what my career was. Cause I mean, I went to school for math, but Right. The only real prospects for a math degree are like graduate school in yeah. math, becoming uh-huh. an actuary, which I didn't want to do, uh-huh. or become a math teacher, which I also didn't want to do. Right. right. And like I had to turn my hobby, which was making websites and doing stuff in mm-hmm. Photoshop, mm-hmm. I had to turn that into my career, which luckily I've been able to do. But, you know, it's one of those things where you have to, those years were really lean. Like I had to really yes. kind of figure it out. So I know what you mean about like yes. that building that entrepreneurial spirit. It's not something you can, you can like learn in college. You have to like go through the fire. <laughs> you have to go through the fire. You have to have, you have to have clients who don't pay you. You have to be, you have to have pull all nighters. You yep. have to look for work in the most unlikely of places. Like you, you said it all, you know, and, and I think that builds character. I really do. I think that builds character, and it, it, it's it's really foundational work, whether you whether you realize it or not at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I think it pays off in dividends, and you know, I, you know, my background too. You know, I, I my my dad's side is is from the islands, and you know that also comes with its own set of uh, philosophies uh-huh, as well. Uh-huh. And so, you know, you always have a job or two or three. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was, it was absolutely no question that I was going to have to figure it out. And, and don't get me wrong. I had support from my parents as well, but I, I, I knew that I was expected to figure that out. Yeah. Um, so between, so, yeah. between your work, like at the work you've done at S and P global and the work you're doing now at IBM, you know, you're, building teams and everything. How do Mm -hmm. you ensure that you're keeping uh, diversity in mind when you're building teams? I think that's something within the past, maybe five to seven years has really been a big sticking point in the tech and the design community as well. Making sure that you are building like a diverse workforce. How do you keep that in mind? Yeah, I think it is such a critical question that you ask because there seems to be formulas that folks will talk to you about and you'll see the buzzwords about diversity and inclusion and all the corporations and how they're approaching and what have you. And I really think it boils down to being tuned in and connected to your network 
of people and making sure that you have enough sponsorship to bring people into organizations or connect them to other people who may not be an organization, who may have their own company or may do be doing a special project or what have you. So, you know, for me, my experience with making sure that there is diverse representation on the team has, has varied depending on where I am and what position I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, prior to joining IBM and, and even still how I work today, my network reflects me in the majority of individuals I'm connected with in terms of gender and color and, and geography. However, because of the organizations I've been involved in, my network also reflects that, right? Which typically is male dominated, which typically is Caucasian, which typically is a, a kind of a higher income set that that I grew up in. And so I, I, I kind of always had this, particularly when I when I graduated college, but even in college, understood that duality of the worlds that I was going in between. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I think about how I've hired. I have one very close recruiter that I worked with um, who knows my philosophy in terms of making sure that when I'm bringing in people into my team, that I have a team that is diverse from a racial point of view, diverse from a gender point of view, and also from the way that they think, right? In terms of designers who may not have a traditional background, who may have not actually gone to school for design, Mm-hmm. Um, but picked it up along the way and taught themselves, right? So it, it's it's from a practice level, but it's also very much from an identity level. I think sometimes we skirt around the issue when we talk about diversity and you'll, you'll hear people talk about, well, yes, it's in, in diversity of thought and skill set is important too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We all know that. That's absolutely the case. But we also are dealing with like systems that have been placed that have not given equal opportunity to people of color, to to women. And so that has to be righted, right? And so when I can, and it's particularly because I have a network of people that have similar backgrounds, I'm going to connect those people into my organization if there's a fit or into friends' organization and connect each other. I think that is really where a lot of this... this um, change happens is on that in that personal level and that the 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 companies that exist some of these leading companies yes have to have the infrastructure and the process in place to be able to kind of mechanize <laughs> recruiting and retention but you know it, it's folks like us who are in the field and have networks of people that look like us that are the starting point, frankly, to bringing in more diverse talent. Um, and so I tap into my network as much as I possibly can, texting, calling, posting jobs, or what have you. Um, I think that's 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 really the the root of it. Uh, the the one thing that I have been considering, you know, I, I haven't done this formally yet, but I I, I did it in the in, in the past when I was recruiting. Is, is look at doing like a writer, right? And saying, okay, well, if you're going to show me candidates, then from the candidates that you select uh, and put in front of me, I not only want to see all these skill sets, but I also want candidates from these underrepresented groups as part of the pool you're going to put in front of me. So sort right? of like, like an inclusion writer in exactly. a way. Okay. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and that, and that's something that, you know, you're, you're setting the stage, you're setting the tone on your expectations, but then you're also then able to have a starting point already that gives you at least a certain level of diversity that you may not be tapped into just because you don't have the connection to some, you know, to other, to other folks. So, um, you know, those are some of the things I'm thinking about. I know, you know, I, when IBM, uh, you know, we actually just recently had a call uh, around our approach to diversity in terms of s- reaching out to diverse schools, specifically mm-hmm. um, HBCUs, and also looking at some more kind of grass re- grassroots guerrilla efforts. Um, so, you know, I'm going to get involved in that as well. But you know, I-, I haven't quite figured out exactly the approach that I'm going to take specific to to where I am now. 
but but the network is it starts with the network. It starts with your 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 personal connections. Well, I'll I'll drill down just a little further into that. Yeah. Like, what are your thoughts on the lack of hiring, retention, and promotion of Black women in like the design and tech fields? Yeah, you know, it's I have a lot of frustration around it, and I yeah, this. I try to make my frustration productive mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to making it, it, it put me in a, a place of stagnation or um, cynicism. You know, a couple of years ago, I was actually when I, I reached out to you a couple of years ago, I decided that I wanted to really highlight some of the voices that exist in the field specifically the black voices that exist in the field, men and women, and use that as baseline for my thesis work uh, that I completed in 2017, specifically looking at, okay, well, what do these designers who oftentimes are not recognized, who have not been normalized, who have not become the icon, so to speak, when we go to conferences or when we see essays in the in the design community highlighted, those folks are not represented. Um, and so my my efforts to turn that frustration into into something productive started with working on my thesis and interviewing uh, women and men in the field and get their points of views specific to their career path. Mm -hmm. And each and every one was unique, but also what they thought about creativity specifically. I won't go too far down that path because that could be a whole nother segment, uh, Maurice. But um, I think th the point is that the, the change that has to happen with representation and actualization of Black women specifically is going to really start with our community, and I mean the Black community, making sure that we connect each other to opportunities mm. and uphold each other and normalize each other and make each other icons, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's foundational, and that was part of why I wanted to have research that, that really spoke specifically to uh, designers who weren't represented in that way. Um, but I think we also have to push on the organizations too, right? So we have to push on, I, I, I'm going to call it something, it's like we have to push on, and I, and I think AIGA is moving towards this, and I see some of the work that they're doing in the diversity and inclusion space and the new conference they have coming up, I think this year, for the first time I'm seeing a very colorful group that's represented mm -hmm. uh, lineup of speakers right so yeah i think uh, they have um ashley axios who's been on the show yes uh, episode yes. 150 for people i think she's putting together the lineup for that yes and 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 you can and her point of view is reflected in that lineup right and so wow imagine that you know when, when you start to kind of change the dynamics of who's leading in organizations who is who is who has the ability to kind of frame up what things look like whether it's a speaker lineup or whether it's an ethos, how, how, how that representation and the actual people who are presenting changes. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I, I do very much think it's, 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 it's the community level in terms of the specific, the black community, but we also have to demand that we have a place in these larger organizations from academic institutions all the way to some of the kind of industry institutions that exist too. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you up, up top, it is it is lonely, but there are people doing it. You know, I think of uh, a, a Bozma St. John that that you know she's not necessarily a designer, but leading black woman um, in now the kind of the marketing space. I think she's CMO right now at Endeavor, uh, and and she she's out there and she is bold and she she is she is does not apologize for being who she is. And, and leading the charge and just making sure the world sees her, right? And so I think that's, I think, frankly, a lot of the work is to make sure that, that we're seen. And, and if we don't have the kind of sponsorship we're looking for in organizations, create our own. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, it's like, I'm, I'm like, we don't, not, everything doesn't have necessarily be that, oh, you have to be going through these particular types of companies or get these particular types of awards yeah. to be deemed like worthy or, you know, it's, the Oscars just happened, right? I mean, we talk about that too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, we can, we, there's, there's certain, there's, there's, we create our own as well. Um, so it, it, it's 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 a it's a push it's a push to push ourselves and have representation in those organizations. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I also think I I think the more valuable work and the work we're going to be proud of at the end of the day is how we pull our networks into opportunities and how we create our own spaces. Yeah, like there has to be a seat at the table essentially. Yeah. We have to make our own seat at the table or make yeah. our own table or make our own. T- I mean, look, Mar- you with a vision path, right? That's that's what you did. Right, you you made that space, and what is it? Two hundred? What seventy? Where are you in episodes? I just checked uh, yesterday. Well, th- this episode uh, when it comes out will be two eighty seven. So oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're getting up there. We're getting up there, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So and then you know, and then folks started to catch on and, and 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 you know come with the accolades or what have you, but we don't wait for that. Yeah. And, and to be clear, when you talk about sponsorship, I just want to make sure that the sure. audience is not confused. You're not necessarily talking about financial sponsorship. No, I can clarify that. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, sponsorship is a more active way of being able to put in place opportunities for people. So, for example, you'll hear it a lot where, you know, someone will say, oh, I have a mentor versus a sponsor. Mm-hmm. A sponsor will be the person that can support you, that can promote you into, let's say, a new opportunity, whether it's a job or a speaking opportunity, uh, uh, that a sponsor is active in that mm. way. Right. Okay. Um, that that's what I mean when I, when I talk about sponsorship. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mm-hmm. like that, that distinction too, like a sponsor versus a mentor mm-hmm. and, and, you know, sort of also to talk about, um, you know, kind of creating these own platforms and this will, by the time this episode airs, of course, this will be out there. But uh, one thing that I'm doing personally is I'm putting out a call for submissions for this design anthology that mm-hmm. I want to put out called Recognize. Mm-hmm. And we're doing, uh, in conjunction with Envision, as part of an endowment from their Design Forward Fund. And it's going to be an anthology that features, you know, essays and commentary from indigenous people and people of color. It's mm-hmm. what I'm calling the next generation of emerging design voices. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was something that really came about from winning the Stephen Heller Prize for Cultural Commentary last year. Mm-hmm. Um, being at the gala and talking to people and then even sort of, honestly, the fallout from mm-hmm. getting that award. I haven't talked about this publicly, so this is kind of exclusive. So <laughs> a lot of the fallout that came from that award was really interesting. Like there were calls of people saying that it was uh, – an affirmative action sort of thing. Um, how is this going towards a podcast when it's supposed to go towards writing? You know, a number of, of different kinds of, uh, you know, criticisms about me winning the award, about someone who is not like a traditional designer in the fact. Because, I mean, when I won the award, I was doing marketing for a mm-hmm. software company. I was not an mm-hmm. in-house designer. I did not go to design school or anything, and yet I've won this design award from a design organization. It's like, well, are, is AIGA giving these out? Like that's what that's one of the the criticisms I heard from from some people, things like that. Um, but certainly, I think you know, with the ethos behind me making Revision Path was so that Black designers could be recognized. I mean, when I go to a design museum or a design convention or something like that, and I go to the bookstore and I'm looking for design books to pick up. There are very few, if any, by people of color. And that's not to, to put down the current crop of design writers that are out there writing and creating books. I think that's great. But, like, who's the next generation? Who are the next voices that we're trying to lift up so they can be recognized, which is why I'm calling mm-hmm. it recognized. But, like, who are those next voices? Mm-hmm. And so this anthology hopefully will be a way to showcase that and spotlight that i hope that this will be something that i can kind of keep going year after year or whatever the frequency is we're just starting it out this year just to see kind of what the feedback is going to be but i hope people will kind of get a chance to submit and check it out we hope to launch it by the end of the year fingers crossed knock on wood Um, so if you're listening definitely get those submissions in i'll put a link in the show notes and all that kind of good stuff 
Yeah, I'm going to be looking out for that. It's it's sorely needed. Um, I think it is it is one of the spaces that's also very much ignored, not just in terms of Black designers, but folks who are so-called new or emerging mm-hmm. in the space to give them recognition, right? Um, and and it, it's it's going to be, I, I think, again, one of the elements to making change happen on that larger scale level. So even when people came at you with a certain level of criticism around why you got the water would have you, that's chipping away at what is tradition. That's mm-hmm. chipping away at what is status quo. And so the things that you're doing, Maurice, the things that I'm doing, our community is doing slowly, I believe, is chipping away at this status quo that looks a certain way. However, at the same time, we need to be creating our own. And yeah. that's like and that's and that's why I appreciate about kind of both approaches. Yeah, absolutely. So what advice would you give to somebody that I mean they're listening to this episode, they want to follow in your footsteps. What yeah. advice would you give them? That your path is your path. You know, you, you carve you carve your own path and there's no convention to how you can arrive in in a field. Specifically, you know, we're talking about, you know, design, but whether you're, you know, a developer or or wanting to be a creative director or a marketer, what you know, in that kind of complementary scope of of what we consider creative industries, that the path is really yours to carve. You know, I, when I reflect on, on on my path, there were certain foundations that I had to have. I chose for my foundations to go the academic route, right? I, I chose to to do the the bachelor's and, and, and focus my interest there and have a fine arts degree and a studio art degree. But I also recognized that there was a heck of a lot of value that I gained on the ground actually doing the work and being in practice. So you, you kind of have the, the theory and the foundational elements you get from school, but you also have to complement that with practice. So there are certainly foundational elements that you have to have. I, I, I won't discredit that, but I think that when it comes to deciding, oh, well, should I should I work at this, this agency? Should I just work at agencies? Is it okay for me to go in-house and go to a brand? Um, what about starting my own thing? I think, frankly, do it all. Like, <laughs> I don't see, you know, do it all. I, I, I am, I think that unless, there, unless you have a clearly defined desire for working in one way, which mm-hmm. I think that's just typically not what designers mindset is like anyway. Um, you know, unless there's that burning desire, try it all out, do your own thing on the side work at a studio, try an agency, work in-house, right? Um, there, there's no specific formula that's going to yield specifically where you will be as a design professional. The only formula is really what you kind of put together as a culmination of your experiences. And so that's something that I learned in my career was that each experience led to the next experience. Mm-hmm. Right. And I only knew what the next experience was because I tried something out that I had not tried before. So that's I think that's just a fundamental just to, to you know, try, try things that are necessary, the, 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 the convention. Um, and I think the, the one other thing I will share with share with listeners is that, you know, get outside of the field, too. And, you know, I, I think the, the thing that can also be very inspiring about figuring out where you want to go is looking at folks who may um, may not be in the same discipline that you're in, but there's some qualities that they exhibit that you really want. So, for example, perhaps they 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 created their own their own spaces, they created their own firm or company, and you know you have that entrepreneurial desire, but it has nothing to maybe do with design or 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 a complementary discipline, why not learn from that individual and, and figure that out and still be able to kind of hone your practice as well? So there, there are no, I guess the, 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 the closing thought, that there are no rules um, in this. And 10 years ago, 
if I were to, you know, go back and look at where I am now, I don't even think there were a design executive. That didn't even, that wasn't even, five years ago, that's not even Mm -hmm. five years ago, that wasn't a time. Frankly, this role I have right now, this is a new, this is actually a new role, right? So there was no, there wasn't a, there wasn't something for me to look at and say, oh, that's exactly where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. It was the culmination of all the experiences that I had put together, and I reflected on that and thought, oh, actually, this type of role makes sense for where I want to be. And they happened to be thinking in, like in a similar in a similar fashion, and we we you know have have a connection there. But um, I couldn't have planned for this, but I could do the work that would allow me to be here. So take on those experiences don't do just the formula that you think it is going to school and getting a job and working at a particular type of shop or what have you try it all out. Where do you see yourself in the next few years? What kind of work do you want to be working on? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a perpetual learner. So, so I, I know whatever I'll be doing will involve, some type of community building team related aspect. Um, I, that's that's what I love to do is working with people because I just I think the impact that you can make as a collective is so significant and so transformational that I know it's 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 where I want to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in the next couple of years, I. I'd like to be able to say, you know, we when we look back and say that I've been able to add to my team uh, a level of transformation that was driven by them, um, that is owned by them, and that they're proud of. Uh, that, to me, would be the icing on the cake to have transformed the culture to that level and to have the next, you know, design executives in queue, right. To take on, to take on those roles, mm-hmm. um, that that's where, you know, wh- whatever the outcome of wherever two years is that that's, that's in general where I want to be. But, you know, I also keep myself really busy on the personal side too. So, you know, I have some creative projects in the works as well. And I'm working on a um, comedic show with my partner. And that's okay. something that, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about that. And so, you know, hopefully, again, in a couple of years, that'll be, we'll be on, you know, that'll be syndicated. It'll be everywhere. Um, and it'll be something <laughs> that I'm also kind of, kind of uh, evolving into, you know, chapter two and chapter three. Um, so so I, I'd like to keep myself, my talents occupied and, 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 and growing. And so wherever it is, I want to be putting it to the fullest use in the next couple of years. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Yeah. So, you know, I, I am definitely on Twitter. Um, I, I'm not a, I'm not an everyday, every hour kind of Twitter person, but they can find me on, on, on my Twitter. My handle is at, uh, S H four N I that's S H the number four N I and, uh, my website, uh, Sandy.com. So it's S H A N I S A N D Y.com. Pretty easy. Sounds good. Well, Shani yeah. Sandy, I want to thank you. Oh my God. Thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing. I mean, not just, you know, your story about how you got here, but also really talking a lot about the work that you do aside from, you know, your, design work at IBM, but even just with building teams and with helping with just kind of the next generation of designers, I think that this is something that a lot of people will get a lot of motivation from. And certainly the important point about carving out your own lane is something that I certainly feel very strongly and passionately about. And I think that when people listen to this interview, they'll get that from you as well. So thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Maurice. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. And thank you, everyone. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Shani Sandy and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Shani and her work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. 
Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. Designing at Facebook means more than just making pixel-perfect prototypes. It's designing experiences like disaster relief tools or get-out-the-vote efforts. It's working on problems that transform a number of different industries, and it also means caring about the design community and giving back to it as well. If you like influencing strategy and working alongside technical leads and engineers on a product from start to finish, then Facebook design might be for you. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. Create emails, ads, landing pages, and more, all without ever leaving the site. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. Revision Path is brought to you by Glitch, the friendly community where you'll find the app of your dreams. Make sure you check us out today at glitch.com. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Mandre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes about a minute or so to do, and it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Push that.